It's down to tonight for the Guardians. They had one heck of a comeback win Saturday night. Lost last night. They're back in New York. Game five. It's a great way to go into October. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And we are not talking about the Browns just the guardians <laughs> and let's talk some politics chief politics writer andrew tobias sets the record straight on where jd vance and tim ryan differ as they enter the final weeks of their campaign to replace rob portman in the senate lisa this first installment ran friday a second installment's running this week what did andrew report in the first installment about how they differ Yeah, Andrew asked them questions about the economy and inflation, energy and the environment, and public safety and guns in this first one. Um, Very interesting. They they diverged on most topics, but maybe not quite as much as you'd think. Tim Ryan is the Democrat, 49-year-old from Trumbull County. He's been representing Mahoning Valley in Congress since 2003. And little did I know, he's a published author. He's published two books on yoga and meditation and health and eating eating and healthy eating. And J.D. Vance, of course, 38 years old from Middletown, Ohio. He wrote Hillbilly Elegy in 2016 and then moved to the West Coast to become a venture capitalist before coming back to Ohio to run for Senate. So on on the economy and inflation, Tim Ryan says that Democrats do share some of the blame for inflation, but he says it's mostly due to pandemic disruptions to global trade, corporate price gouging, and the Russia-Ukraine war uh, and its effect on oil markets. He's trying to float a middle-class tax cut as a solution. Uh, Vance uh, blames the Dems and President Biden completely for restricting fossil fuel industry. And uh, But he was asked, you know, there were two huge spending bills that came in under the Trump, uh, you know, uh, era. And did that contribute to inflation? And Vance said, yes, but not the same as, as Biden's, you know, infrastructure bills and so forth. And on the energy and environment, Vance says he is what, quote, an energy maximalist. He says, we need more nuclear power. We need to drill for oil and gas here in the U.S. And he says that fossil fuels produced here is a solution to climate change. And I'm not really sure how that tracks. But anyway, Ryan, he says he's all for reduced emissions, but he says there's a role for natural gas in the green energy, you know, movement. He's also, you know, wants provisions for solar and wind. He wants electric vehicles and carbon carbon sequestration tax credits. And uh, he says he supports the Voltage Valley, which is that area in Lordstown and and where they're building electric vehicles now. So I'll stop there and we'll talk. What's interesting is when Vance talks about the, the various forms of stimulus causing inflation, you know, nobody was complaining about getting that money in the pandemic. There were a lot of people that were in trouble during the pandemic. That extra unemployment helped them get past and it kept a lot of restaurants going. It's amazing how short memories are now that prices are a bit higher. I should point out that our editorial board endorsed heartily Tim Ryan over the weekend, finding Vance to be a craven coward, partly because of his claims about the the election having been stolen from Donald Trump. And it is We talk about their approaches to issues in this academic fashion, as Andrew does in the story. 
But that doesn't get into character and integrity at all. There is a difference between these two candidates that goes well beyond where they stand on the issues. One is that you can't count on J.D. Vance to stand on anything because he has changed so dramatically Mm -hmm. in just five, six years. I mean, in 2016, he was one version of himself, you know, describing Trump as a bad guy. And now, you know, he stood next to Trump on a stage while Trump said, hey, he's kissing my ass. So that's the striking difference. But you don't get at that in a story like this. No, no. But uh, true. And we didn't get to see them, you know, square off in our endorsement meetings either because uh, Vance refused to attend. But they were slightly closer, Chris, though, on health care. Just a little bit. I mean, uh, Tim Ryan says he's all for expanding Medicare eligibility instead of Medicare for all, but he said he'd like to see some public option. Um, he says that the, you know, the fact that Medicare can now negotiate drug prices and starting in 2026 is a good thing. Now, Vance says that he's not against universal government health care. He actually argued against the Republican efforts to repeal Obamacare back in 2017. He says he sees it more as catastrophic coverage. So universal coverage for those with catastrophic health issues, everything else would be market oriented, which is a little worrisome. But he did praise the Medicare drug negotiations. Yeah, we. I, I should point out too. We we hammered J.D. Vance when he came to Ohio, and he had rules for covering him where you can only talk to people that they approved first, and all sorts of other things. We're still getting traction about our stand of not going. Margaret Sullivan at the Washington Post did a column saying more news agencies need to do this kind of thing. So we don't have a really good relationship with J.D. Vance because he's really kind of promoting authoritarian government. It's today in Ohio. We talk a lot about the Cuyahoga County Jail, but we should never forget the chief purpose is to keep inmates safe and healthy while awaiting trial or serving sentences. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish has pretty much failed at this for eight years. Layla, what did the former inmates and some guards describe in interviews with Caitlin Durbin about conditions of the jail these last eight years? Well, Caitlin had been working on this for some time, collecting these really compelling stories from folks who had spent time in the county jail during the past decade. And it's a time that spans the years before and after the 2018 Marshall's report that detailed many of the poor conditions in the county jail. And the conclusions that we can draw from these stories are really twofold. First, that we hear the same kinds of complaints after the Marshall's report as we heard before the report, suggesting that many of the problems have really gone unaddressed. And also, even though county officials have been hotly debating whether to build a new jail, many of these complaints are regarding problems that a new jail just would not fix. We're talking about terrible food, completely unsanitary cleaning practices, inhumane treatment of inmates. These are management problems that we could easily assume would just show up at a brand new facility. So the conditions are so bad that former inmates told Caitlin that they would rather go to prison than serve their sentence at the jail. Multiple former inmates talked about the well-documented practice of overusing solitary confinement. It's known as red zoning at the jail, where inmates would be locked in their cells for long periods in isolation, not because of bad behavior, but because of staffing problems. Maintaining proper hygiene in the jail is notoriously a problem. 
Daily showers weren't guaranteed. The same three cleaning rags were recycled across dozens of cells. You're talking like dozens of toilets cleaned with three rags. And when the toilet paper ran out for the week, no more was provided. And, and you know, inmates said it was a luxury to have their uniforms cleaned once a week. One inmate said he had a substance abuse problem, but although he could, you know, you could easily access drugs in the facility if you wanted to, but they wouldn't provide any programming for Alcoholics Anonymous or other drug treatment. And he said, it doesn't matter if you're in there for jaywalking, public intoxication, DUI, or murder. It doesn't matter. You're being treated like you're Anthony Sowell. They, that, that's their default. They treat everybody like they're a monster. You know, we, we heard other stories about inmates being provided no undergarments besides the ones that they wore into the facility or could afford to buy at the commissary. So on wash days, inmates would just sit around in their shared dorm space naked and wrapped in their bed sheets. And showers were clean, but once a month, everything was covered in caked on filth and insects were everywhere. Um, one man told a story about uh, another inmate who had begun having a seizure. And he said everyone was shouting for help that never came until, until the guy started, stopped moving. And by then they were shouting, he's dead, he's dead. He's, you know, not sure if the inmate died, but he recalls, you know, the officers dragging his body from the room and the man never came back. So these are just harrowing stories from from within this facility, and it didn't didn't seem like anything was much improved based on their their telling of it after the marshal's report. Well, right, that's the problem. Is a lot of you could claim I didn't know until you got the marshal's report, and they claimed they were going to work on this. Bill Mason was brought in as Armand Budish's chief of staff. Bill Mason, a longtime county prosecutor, specifically to get working on the jail. And it sounds like they didn't. I mean, why didn't they just get a group of people together, make a task list and get it done? You know, they, what they should have done, they should have tried to get Jane Platten to come over from Metro Health and get her to fix it. Because it sounds like you really needed somebody focused to fix it. These are not insurmountable problems. For most of the life of the jail, these were not problems. So why are they problems now? You're right. And, and, and actually, you're totally right that Bill Mason made it his singular focus. I remember that being what he was dedicated to accomplishing when he came into office. And we really have not seen the kind of, of uh, remedy that he, that he promised. You know, and Lisa will want to ring in here. Mike O'Malley, the, the current county prosecutor, repeatedly says the solution here is to go back to having an elected sheriff, somebody who's accountable to the people and is dedicated to this and knows what they're doing. And of course, we had a longtime corrupt sheriff, Jerry McFall, but as O'Malley points out, but he ran the jail right. So, so that part of the system worked. Lisa, you've been saying since you got back that you think that we are we should have the elected sheriff. When you hear conditions like this, is just does that cement your resolve? Yes, it does. And I mean, sheriffs in most other large cities have control of the jail without interference from the county council or the county commissioner's court, whatever form of government they have. And, you know, as I've said before, in this situation, the sheriff is only as good or as effective as the county council executive who oversees him. Yeah, but that's the problem is if if you had a competent county executive who actually appointed a sheriff to do this right, you could get it done. I just is it a failure of the voters to elect the right person to do this job or is it all about the one party rule where you really don't have much of an opposition party? 
I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Armin Budish is on his way out. I think we're down to 80 days before he's done. And it'll be interesting to see whether the next executive can can quickly turn this around. We're talking basic sanitation here and decent food. It's today in Ohio. Environmental organizations are fed up with the poor regulation of gas and oil injection wells in Ohio. Laura, this isn't really a Northeast Ohio problem, but it is a big problem in parts of the state. What's the complaint and what do they propose as a solution? Yeah, this is a huge issue. Um, in the eastern part of the state, south of Youngstown. And the problem is that a whole bunch of waste disposed in these injection wells comes from Pennsylvania and West Virginia, as well as Ohio. And they're being monitored by the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. It's been doing this since 1983. But the environmental organizations really want the US EPA to take over because they don't think that ODNR is really protecting the environment here. So these groups include the Buckeye Environmental Network, Sierra Club, Earth Justice, and they say basically that's in violation of the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act. Because if you think about this, these injection wells, they dispose the wastewater generated from fracking. And you don't have to say what's in the fr- like in this wastewater. That's considered trade secret. So they, we're talking about radioactive me- material, heavy metals that naturally exist in the ground. Also, they might inc- uh, include PFAS, the forever chemical. And it's just going in the ground and there's not enough information or regulation about what's in there. So how how would it be better under another agency's control? Well, if you're in the US EPA, then obviously the federal government stands behind that and there could be penalties just like the consent decree that we've got for um for water in in Northeast Ohio. ODNR doesn't have unilateral authority to issue penalties. They've got to rely on the Ohio Attorney General to do so and maybe that's not going to happen. So it's a very cumbersome process. It rarely gets done and it results in the same violations over and over again. Also, there's not a lot of public notice or room for appeals for the public to be able to give their say on these projects. Um, ODNR said, we're doing a great job. We don't need to change. But they did say when asked about why they don't toughen their rules, they said industry has a lot of influence in this state with our regulators. Doesn't some of the responsibility for this go to Mike DeWine? He's the executive. He's the guy that's in charge of ODNR, and he's supposed to be in the middle of an election campaign. Has Nan Whaley said anything about this? I haven't heard much from Nan Whaley. I haven't heard anything on this about it. But if the penalty phase is required for the Ohio Attorney General, then I think we should ask Yost about it, too. Okay. Well, we may be doing an endorsement interview with him in the next couple of weeks, so maybe we can. It's Today in Ohio. The press release for this next one reads almost like a parody. Lisa, what change is the Ohio State Highway Patrol making to its uniform rules to attract more troopers? Yeah, they're changing their uniform dress code that banned visible tattoos in any version of their uniform. So in the summer, they wear short sleeves, and in the winter, they wear long sleeves, and they didn't allow any exceptions to cover up these tattoos. So they've changed the dress code to say that troopers are allowed to wear long sleeve shirts year-round, you know, not just in the winter. 
winter so they can keep their tats covered. Uh, Patrol Sergeant Roy Santiago says this should really help with recruitment. He says people with visible arm tattoos have kept some, you know, interested applicants and qualified applicants away. And in a time of law enforcement recruitment shortages, this is a big thing. And uh, Highway Patrol Colonel Charles Jones says this will also allow a more diverse candidate field at a time when they're really trying to fill their ranks. In Cleveland, the police department in a July uh, order said they will allow officers to display their tattoos. They are looking to fill 250 officer spots in here in Cleveland. And the Middletown Police Department, this is pretty funny, they had a Facebook post in August that says, quote, H-E double hockey sticks has frozen over and tattoos are now allowed at Middletown Police Department. They, again, are hoping to attract a larger field of employees by allowing display of tattoos or wearing a uniform to cover them up. You know what I found humorous about this is I had no idea that troopers in the summer had been required to wear short sleeve shirts. There are some who believe that the button down short sleeve work shirt is not very stylish. And it was the edict of the state that they wear them, which was is amusing. Uh, it's just fascinating how because of the shortage of, of candidates, they're really changing the rules. The other thing is they're kind of behind the times. Tattoos have become much more of an acceptable uh, trend than, than maybe 50 years ago when they were writing these rules. Well, as long as you don't have a neck tat that says, you know, death to the police, I guess, you know, you know, because tattoos <laughs> can be offensive, you know. Wait, let's yes, see. they can. It seems to me that this is a tiny baby step in the direction of recruiting, <laughs> recruiting the people that might have tattoos. I mean, you know, w w the message here is like, got tattoos? No problem. You can roast all summer long in a long sleeve shirt <laughs> and, you know, cover up your tat. I, I don't understand that at all. I, I get with the times, let people, you know, be themselves. Everyone has tattoos these days let it let it let it ride and they probably had a committee working on this for a long time to come up with this so interesting it was one of those press releases the minute you read it you just kind of laugh to yourself and of course we'll do a story on that it's today in ohio does anyone not know someone who has suffered or died from breast cancer early detection is the key and so what is the good news Layla for women who worry about the costs of cancer screening well at the end of September governor DeWine signed House bill 371 into law requiring that insurers provide coverage for a yearly mammogram to all women regardless of age or risk factor and in addition the law insures coverage for for other screenings in women who are at high risk for cancer because of personal or family history ancestry a genetic predisposition to, to cancer or who have dense breast tissue. Screenings can include a type of digital 3D mammography called tomosynthesis, which makes it easier for radiologists to identify cancer in dense breast tissue, MRI, ultrasound, or molecular breast imaging, as long as they're performed at a facility accredited by the American College of Radiology. So before this change, insurers didn't always cover annual or supplemental screening exams. So as a result of that, a lot of patients would sometimes just skip those because they couldn't pay the out-of-pocket costs. Digital tomosynthesis is particularly important in, in the group of women who have dense breast tissue. 
these are women have higher ratio of glandular tissue to fat tissue, which makes cancers really hard to spot on traditional mammograms. And they also have a higher risk for developing breast cancer. According to the National Cancer Institute, 40% of all women and 70% of those between the ages of 40 and 50 have dense breasts. So using tomosynthesis, doctors are calling fewer women back for additional screenings. So this just makes that so much more available to to women at large. You just wonder how many people might have died because the cost of the screening yeah. was too prohibitive. I mean, it's such, like I said, we all know people that have suffered from this. It's, it's uh, crushing. So it's good news. I'm glad he signed it. It's, it's a uh, right. Now you just got to get the word out to as many people as possible, which is why we're talking about it here. It's today in Ohio. We're talking some big dollar amounts for the damages caused when the sprinkler system failed, flirt, flooding parts of Tower City and the Jack Cleveland Casino. Laura, how much and why is this now the subject of a lawsuit? $36 million. I don't remember this happening on Ju- in June of 2021, but there was a big kind of disaster inside the Jack Casino where an elbow fitting joint in a pump in the north stairwell uh, between 11th and 12th floors at Tower City became disconnected. And this led to a massive amount of water rushing through Tower City into the casino, causing all sorts of significant water damage. You just think about all the bells and whistles in that place and the water pouring down and the malfunctioning and, and shorting out. But the building was shut down for the day and there were videos posted online that showed water pouring from the ceilings and pooling on the floor near the entrance uh, near Public Square. So now they're suing to try to recoup the money that they spent to fix this. And I believe it's $33 million for Tower City and $3 million for Jack. And this is Fireman Fund Insurance filing the lawsuit in federal court against Barberton-based SA Communal Company. They're the ones that installed those steel pipes. Yeah, I, that, I, I don't remember it at all either. Of course, we were still in the middle of reporting a lot on COVID, so we missed some things. But that's a huge amount of damage from a pipe that bursts. Uh, if you think about the money you're spending to renovate your home, imagine <laughs> how far that much money would go to get the job done. Uh, it's, did the, does the lawsuit list all the things that were damaged or is it just pretty vague? I don't know. I haven't read the the, the small print of the lawsuit, but um, what's interesting is they were installing these sprinkler systems in the event of a fire, right? So it's protection for the building, and it's the one that ended up causing this damage. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Lee Weingard and Chris Ronane had remarkably different thoughts about public transit, bike paths, and urban planning at a recent forum. Lisa, this was very interesting the, the, to see that sharp a divide. Where do they each stand? Yeah, I'm not sure that Weingart really addressed a lot of the questions that were being asked during this debate. This was on Thursday. It was the Forum on Mobility at Goldhorn Brewery, which was organized by Clevelanders for Public Transit and Bike Cleveland. About 100 people attended. So Chris Renane shows up with a bike helmet, which he made sure to put down in front of his chair and said that he rode his bike on North Marginal Road from his west side home to attend this meeting. And he says he is all for bike and pedestrian friendly planning. And he says it's a key to more livable communities. Um, He also was asked if he had ridden public transit recently. He says, yes, I rode the RTA health line on Euclid two days before this meeting. And he says, while it is local governments that deal with streets and sidewalks, he said that 
if he became county executive, he would create a mobility and infrastructure department and work with cities to achieve these goals. And he pointed to the 2019 Cuyahoga County Greenways Plan, which is 815 miles of connecting trails to all 59 cities in the county. Now, Weingart, on the other hand, says he's sympathetic to these needs, but he says the county needs to focus on basic services housing, jobs, health care, accessibility. He, he respects the autonomy of the mayors in the suburbs. He says the county shouldn't be pushing them on transportation planning. And he said, honestly, you can't move forward until other stuff is fixed. He th- feels that, Weingart feels that repopulating the urban core would drive transit demand. And, you know, it. he pointed out to Ronane, he says, actually, you're taking on a bigger role than the county government should have in these plans. Well, Lee is definitely tapping into the weariness of the voter with taxes and spending. I mean, that's been a big part of his campaign. And so by standing against this kind of thing as a priority and saying, we just got to get the job done, we talked earlier about the jail. Yes, of course, your priority should be taking care of the wards. But the idea that you can't push the mayor's Transit doesn't stop at any municipal boundary. If you want to have bike paths through the county, it's got to, they've got to go through multiple jurisdictions. Of course, the central agency, the county government, should play a role in that. I don't quite understand where he's coming from, where he says, yeah, I'll leave it up to the mayors. Then we're going to have a bunch of bike paths that begin and end at municipal borders and don't connect to each other anymore. Well, and it kind of goes against his whole, you know, because he really was campaigning a lot on regionalism, and this would be a big part of regionalism. So it's a little bit contradictory in my opinion. Yeah, it is. I mean, again, he's right about the idea that that people are weary of the spending and he thinks there are other priorities at the moment. And clearly we, you know, we're losing millions in lawsuits because of the poor administration of the jail. So you do hope the next executive gets in and fixes it. It's today in Ohio. We had a dramatic courtroom scene last week in the sentencing of a man who killed four people, including two children. This story is tragic in every way possible. A lot of lives were wrecked. This is a truly, truly heart-sickening case. A a judge sentenced 29-year-old Armin Johnson to four consecutive life prison terms without the possibility of parole for these crimes. On July 8, 2019, Johnson came to the house where Takira Collins lived with her two children, two-year-old Aubrey Stone and Johnson's six-year-old son, Armin Johnson Jr., and he shot Takira 10 times in her bedroom Then he left the house and went to a relative's house in Cleveland Heights, and he got a gas can, which he used to set Takira's house on fire with the two children still in their beds, and they died of smoke inhalation. And on his way out, a neighbor, David Cousin, was coming home, and Johnson chased him down into a nearby field and shot him dead, too. So the jury who convicted him declined to give him the death penalty because they were moved by the mitigating circumstances of his life, specifically that he was abused and neglected as a child and and had some cognitive issues as a result of that. But those who spoke at his sentencing had heartbreaking things to say about the little babies who were killed in this tragedy, that two-year-old Aubrey was super smart, and that six-year-old Armin loved to sing to the radio. It's just really unthinkable unthinkable yeah. crime yeah it's one of those horrible ones and and didn't i read in the story that the the guy's two brothers also have been uh up uh, on murder charges yeah in an unrelated case yeah. 
Yeah, it sounded so like clearly. they came from they came from a background that gave rise to this kind of uh, uh, outcome. Yeah, it gets back to the whole idea that it takes the village. It's today in Ohio. I can't believe we're talking about Thanksgiving already, but Laura, is there a shortage of turkeys? Yes. <laughs> the USDA is predicting a turkey shortage. Apparently, this isn't hugely dire, but 2 to 3% fewer birds than there were last year, and demand is remaining steady. So grain prices are up, increasing the cost of turkey production since the turkeys eat the grain, and that could mean higher costs for a consumer. The reason for the lower supply is partly bird flu. So 5.4 million turkeys have been quote unquote depopulated because of the exposure to bird flu. So Giant Eagle says not to worry. They've got their turkeys. So if you're shopping a local grocery store, but Gretchen Kudakrone also talked to, or sorry, um, Paris Wolf did this story, um, talked to some local farmers that basically were like, this is why you buy locally. And they're, they're raising their birds in a more you know, kinder environment, I guess you could say, than a lot of these turkeys. Didn't we report last year there was a shortage in the food bank because it had been so prescient, it had gone right. out and ordered them ahead of time? So so when you say fewer than last year, last year was a shortage. So it's a lot fewer. I, well, I definitely think the food prices were way up last year. So, And I do remember that story that, the, that they had bought them months and months before anybody was thinking about Thanksgiving. But you're right. Um, that the costs are just keep going up for this. So you'll wonder how food banks will react to this kind of news or if people are going to start eating more tofurkey or switching to, to something else for Thanksgiving. So should people start buying their turkeys now? Is that the... the I don't know. Have you seen them in the store yet? I haven't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, and, you know, we should check in, obviously, we should check Canada to see if, how the Canadian Thanksgiving went, if they had problems getting there. Always turkeys. the Canada <laughs> reference from Laura Johnston. <laughs> Just had to end it that way on a Monday. It's today in Ohio, and that does it for the Monday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens.